You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. It's kind of reminded me of a hymn that we used to sing, and I guess we still do it on, on occasion. Um, but I stand amazed in the presence, written by Charles Gabriel. It, And this is the way it starts. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean. We realize where we're at or where we've been, then we, when just the idea of standing in the presence of God has this air of amazement, doesn't it? Um, I mean, if you're not amazed, if you don't sit back and go, I realize where I would be apart from the gospel of Christ, where I would be apart from the cross of Christ. If you're not amazed by where you are now based on where you could be if you've accepted Christ as Savior, then then I kind of want to say, okay, where is your relationship with God? What, What is the status of it? On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you be? I stand okay in the presence of God? Or, or I stand, I stand uh, pretty decent in the presence of God? This is what it says in the last verse of that. It says, When with the ransomed in glory, His face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of His love for me. So we ought to be really kind of overflowing with this whole idea that Jesus has done something that I couldn't do on my own. That Jesus has done something in us that I didn't deserve. And so when we get to the chorus of this song, it says, How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I mean, those are incredible words, aren't they? Because even in that, and you could go back and look at the second and third verse. You know, as Baptists, we never sing the third verse. So, it's just kind of the way it works. But if you look through it, you see all of this, this whole pattern that we find in the gospel of, I was here and Jesus did something and that got me over here and it is a really good thing that I can stand over here as opposed to being back here. It's um, what we talked about on Wednesday night, just in talking about our testimony. We were talking about the woman at the well and realized she went back to a city that needed to hear the gospel. And she said, this is what was told to me. And then she, she told them, and they went out, met Jesus, hung out with him for a couple days. And then at the end of that, it says, we don't believe because of what you said anymore. We believe because we've experienced Jesus. It's become personal. And so if I were to ask you, has a relationship with Jesus Christ become personal to you? That's the first question. You go, yeah, it's personal, but I want to keep it personal. I'd just assume if nobody would ask me about my faith, it would be cool if I could just kind of fade into life and just be like everybody else and still go to heaven. And then, even on, and then maybe on Sunday I'll, I'll sing a little bit because we're in church, but, but then I, I kind of want to go back into my Monday through Saturday routine where Jesus is there, but, but He's not really 
something that I count as relevant for what I do each day. This is what um, Will, William Wilberforce, and, and if you know his story, I would encourage you to, to go look at it. He, he really was a proponent of anti-slavery in England and, and just had this voice, and, but he had, a, he had a very deep love for Christ, deep love for God. And this is what he said. Um, he just makes a statement, and, and this, is, this is written about him, so there's a part that talks about what he actually believed, but it's written that the supremacy of God's glory in all things is what Wilberforce was about, and he used this phrase to describe it. He says, the grand governing maxim of all of life is to bring glory, essentially to bring glory to God. The grand governing maxim in all of life is to bring glory to God. And so, how do you measure up in that? How you doing? I, I know for me, if I, if I sat and, and I kind of did this chart of where I am and how much am I bringing glory to God, I sit there and on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say, um, there's some work to be done. And I'm guessing you would be in the same spot. That, that if you kind of took inventory of your life and said, okay, if I... If I track my, my bringing glory to God schedule through the week, I would say there's room for improvement. There's room that I can bring glory to God better in some ways this week or next week. See, if we truly believe that God is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, then our lives ought to reflect that premise or that thought. Right? That's what it would kind of... That's what... Paul is telling Titus in this section of Scripture. I think it's important. Paul, Paul understands this, and this is the reason he writes it, because he understands the importance of our lives reflecting God to a generation that may not know Him. And if you're like me, we struggle, don't we? With that happening all the time. And I wonder why that is. Why doesn't it just come out very naturally, that every decision, everything I do, every, every step that I take is something that brings glory to God. Why do I mess up, or why do I have this attitude about the one in the Walmart parking lot, or why do I have this attitude about the person that's in the cubicle next to me? Why do I struggle with that? Maybe it's because the glory of God becomes backburnered in our life just because we're doing life. We get busy and we kind of put it aside. If it's really about what we believe, then it ought to come to the forefront. Uh, I was uh, just in thinking about this, what, what things drive us. And you know, if we're talking about shopping, there are things that drive us, right? If somebody does something that you don't like, you say, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go to that store. In fact, we will drive further and pay more if we sense that the people at the store like us better or will service us more. So you've, driven, you've likely driven past stores to get to another store because you like the way they take care of you better. Have you done that? I mean, I've done that with restaurants for sure. And so this whole idea, and, and we, we have this 
idea or concept about our, alleg- our allegiances. What will be better for me? And so we, we take a look at that even in sports teams. We can make those decisions about that on immigration or um, this whole argument over human sexuality and gender identity, foreign policy. We've had that one come up all week long. What do we do? How should we do it? Let's change our mind. Let's not change our mind. Let's have more information. Let's really have less information. And whatever it happens to be. And we take that same approach to our relationship with God. We kind of look at it and say, okay, what what needs to happen in in this particular situation and how does it benefit me? Well, look at at the, the visual. The idea is that beliefs drive action. Your belief drives action. And so what do you believe about God? And how does that affect the way you live? If you look at it, it says, okay, the gospel exists, and we have a belief because of the gospel, but is, our, is that, that circle of action driven by what we believe about the gospel? Not driven by what we believe about our neighbor or driven by what we believe about um, some other aspect of our life, but is our life or the actions of our life really driven by the gospel? That's what Paul's getting at in this passage. And to, for us to understand that, we need to review a little bit. So if we look at Titus chapter 3, we're going to go back and read a section. And then we're going to get into what we're talking about this morning. So as we get ready for that, let's pray one more time before we look at Titus chapter 3. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the depth of your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. And God, even looking at it, sometimes it makes us uncomfortable because it calls us to think about things that just bring a discomfort to us because of our desires. And so, Father, as we consider that beliefs drive action and and that we ought to have our focus on you, Father, help us to understand what Paul is trying to communicate here in this this very short letter to Titus. And so, Father, stretch us. And, Father, I pray that, that everything that is communicated this morning would bring glory to you and that it would be your voice, your words, that touch our hearts, that touch our minds, so that we can be more in tune with who you are and what you want from us as Almighty God. So, Father, work this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what it says. Titus chapter 3, we go back just a couple of verses, verse 4. And this is the the background to the next section, so we kind of need it. It says, verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared or became known, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That that passage by some commentators, is regarded as the clearest presentation by Paul of the entire gospel. 
it's, it's interesting when you look at it because you realize that it is really all based on what God does and what God did for us. This whole idea when the kindness of God and His love for mankind appeared or showed up, He saved us. Not on the basis of what we did, but on the basis of what He did. And so Paul, immediately following that, says this is a trustworthy statement. It's trustworthy. How many things can you trust that you hear on a weekly basis? And if you watch the news, how much of it can you trust? And it really doesn't matter what side of the aisle you happen to be on politically. I, I would say that, that all of it has a degree of slant to it. But when we look at the gospel, there is no slant, is there? We can't spin the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And so what Paul says, he says, looking at verses 4 through 7, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. He says, it's true and reliable. And so what he says in this next section, he says, just, just know that you can communicate these things. He says, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Let's just stop right there. What does Paul want from Titus? That he would remember what the gospel is first, right? That's where he starts. Remember what the gospel is, and then concerning these things, be really deliberate. And, and what Paul is saying to Titus, he says, when you share these things, speak confidently. How, how many times have you heard the gospel watered down because some group wouldn't like the gospel? Some group's not going to like it that the gospel, that what it says is Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Him. We want to say, oh, to be politically correct, we want to give you all these other ways you can come to know God. There is not another way. And although you may have friends that believe something different, it puts you in the tension of believing what the gospel says and then turning around and having relationship with those that don't know Christ. It's going to put you at odds. And yet Paul says, speak confidently or strongly affirm what the gospel says. You don't back down on what the gospel says. You love people where they are, but you don't back down on what the gospel says. So are you confident about the gospel? You know, one of the ways that we could even look at this is to ask the question, do we communicate to people, do we communicate to those outside the body of Christ that they need to be holy first before they come to church? Maybe, maybe we do it this way. When you come to church, some people wear this, Others don't, but you would be comfortable in wearing this. But it's not what they usually do. Would people feel comfortable walking into this place regardless of what they wore or what their lifestyle was? Because that's who we're called to love, isn't it? We can find people that look like us all day long. And we can encourage them to come to church. But do we encourage those that don't? Are we willing to go into the places that Jesus would go if He were here? 
Do you believe that apart from the gospel, or apart from the mercy of God, that you would be destined to eternal punishment? Do you believe that? Because that's really what the gospel is all about. All of us fall into that particular category. And so we could be just as comfortable prior to Christ with a drug addict or a prostitute or a homosexual or a murderer or an executive or a stay-at-home mom. It really doesn't matter apart from Christ. We're all in the same boat. We're all destined for eternal punishment, aren't we? And then do you believe that Jesus is the only means by which salvation can be secured? You see, the reality of the gospel and our belief about it is what drives our actions. And if we truly understand where we are before Christ, or where we were before Christ, and where we're at now, it ought to drive us. Drive us in our relationships, drive us in our action. And so the first thing that I want us to understand, the first point is the outcome of your faith is practical. The outcome of your faith is practical. You say, but it's a Sunday thing, or, or even a Sunday-Wednesday thing. It doesn't, it doesn't fit Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. It doesn't fit into those, but it fits into my schedule Sundays and, Sundays and Wednesdays. But this is what Paul says. He says, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God, would you be in that category? Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So that, that whole idea of this is the outcome, this is a result. And we have to be in that place where we trust God and say, God, what have you done in my life? And then out of that, do what God's called us to do. That word, that, that word to engage means to devote, to devote yourself. In other words, to concentrate on the essentials. This is what it means to engage in good deeds. And so good deeds are part of the fabric of knowing Christ. It should be just a natural outcome of knowing Jesus and having a relationship with Him. And if you were to look at John chapter 15, it's that idea of being connected to the vine, to be abiding in Christ. Feinberg wrote in a book, and, and um, if you don't know Margaret Feinberg, um, you ought to read her just for artistic value, if nothing else. Um, Feinberg comes at life from a different angle. Um, she's a Christian writer. I've heard her speak, and she's very flowery. Not as flowery as some, but flowery nevertheless. And, and I like reading her things because there are things that she sees in some of her books that I go, man, I would have never thought about that particular story or that particular part of Scripture like that had I not read this. And so she's got, um, she's got a book called Scouting the Divine where she talks about wine and the making of grape, uh, uh, grape growing and the making of wine and, and how all that fits. And she talks about sheep. And there's several different pieces to this book. And she, she writes this talking about vineyards. And what she's doing is she's comparing different vineyards in California that she visited. And as she met with the vintner about that particular vineyard, 
um, she would learn different things. She said some growers grow lots of grapes, some grow small amounts. And, and she made this statement. She says, the character, the depth, the unique flavor of Christ within the community is unmistakable. So what she saw is, as far as grapes were concerned and the making of wine, she recognizes that that also applies to the church. That we have a specific flavor as Ebenezer. We have a specific, a specific depth to us that ought to be unmistakable within our community. We have a place where God has put us and something for God to accomplish from here. If we don't believe that, then why do we do church? God's made us unique, a unique body with unique people set apart to accomplish certain things. And when the whole body doesn't, is not included in that, like the whole body doesn't buy into that, we're not accomplishing what God's wanted to accomplish through us. And say only 20% of the people do 80% of the work and the other 80% do 20% of the work. How in the world does that work in affecting the community for Christ if the whole body is supposed to be the taste? How can that work? We all are called to be engaged in good deeds. The, the idea is that we live an intentional life and in an, an intentional, intentional manner where the gospel is applied to our lives as we think and act to do. David went and chased something down for me this morning. And I, and David, I just, this is, this is great. There's more to this than, than, um, than I realized when you went on that mission. Um, you guys know what this is, right? Air filter. What's supposed to happen through in this? Air goes in this way, right? Air still comes out this way, but what gets left behind? Huh? De debris stuff. Stuff you don't want to breathe, right? That's what's supposed to happen. If you leave this out, it's not good for your system. You're supposed to change these periodically, and I'm not going to get into that. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's stuff that, air that comes in with stuff, whether it's pollen, depending on what you have, pollen or dust or um, pet dander, all that kind of junk. And then on the other side, it's supposed to be clean air, which is what you're, it's supposed to come out of your vent so that you can breathe right. I love air filters. I love air filters because air filters um, help me not to sneeze Deb out of the house because because it can kind of get like that. But but it's it's that idea is it's saying okay if I'm living life I've got to live life. But what should come out on the other side as it gets filtered by the gospel is what comes out on the other side is a clearer picture of the gospel than what went in. So I've got to allow the gospel to be applied to my life and be intentional, have this in here, so that, so that how I live expresses the gospel right. Well, it's interesting, and this is what's pretty cool about this air filter. Um, this is what it says on the edge of it. Besides high-efficiency pleated furnace filter, it says this, the demon loves dirt. It says it right there. The demon loves dirt. I'm thinking, man, that was, that was better than you could have ever planned, David. 
Yeah, Satan would not want us to share the gospel in clarity. He would just as soon that filter be left out so that as we just go through and we struggle with our humanity and we struggle with that tension with the gospel, that what we portray is a compromised version of what God's Word says. And we get it all mixed up. And so those over here are going, I don't get it. You live like this and the gospel says this and those things aren't matching up. So why should I buy into that? It doesn't really seem to make a difference in your life. We have to allow, by intentionally doing it, allow the gospel to change us. What he says here is to be careful. Be careful to engage in good deeds, to be thoughtful, and to engage or be in practice of doing the things that would show the unbelievers what the gospel entails. And then it says this, it says, these things are good and profitable for men. Well, there's, there's really no description of what men is here in this passage, is there? So these things, this idea of the gospel and, and filtering your, all your actions and your thoughts and all that through the gospel are, are good for all men. But if we just said that it's good for believers, but it doesn't really matter outside the world of believers, then we wouldn't be true to what Scripture says, would we? See, when we live out the gospel, it's really good for believers and unbelievers. It's not just one part. When we live out the gospel of Christ, we're doing our part or should be doing our part as a church to alleviate certain things within our society and to pro- proclaim Christ and making a difference in the world in which we live. It's that whole idea, if your church disappeared this week, would the community miss you? Fact is, engaging also carries the idea that we should be leading in doing good. This whole idea of these things are good and profitable means that we should be leading out in things that are good and profitable for the sake of the gospel. This is what Wilberforce also said. He said, if a principle of true religion or true Christianity should gain ground, there's no estimating the effect on public morals and the consequent influence on our political welfare. What we see in our, in our political world right now is a mess. There's, there's probably other adjectives we could use. And you probably maybe even use them, but it's a mess. But it's because we've ventured so far away from Scripture and from the Gospel that the world has a hard time understanding what it even looks like. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, we, if we've accepted Christ as Savior, are representatives. We're ambassadors for the Lord, proclaiming the mercies of God. And our, our actions directly impact the reception of God's Word to a world that doesn't know Him. The second thing is the opposition to your faith is disruptive. The opposition to your faith is disruptive. 
See, there was a tension, and we read about this in the very beginning where Paul told Titus they're false teachers, and they're causing this turmoil within the house churches, and they're leading people astray. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to marry Jewish law with Christian grace. And trying to say, if you're going to believe in Christ, then you need to also do this. And that's not what Paul was proclaiming is the gospel. He says, you need to make that distinction. The law leads us to understand our need for the gospel, but we don't have to apply the law or put it on top of grace and saying you are responsible for all of this. They are complementary, not conjoined. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. We could spend our time debating Debating that which is ultimately of little value to the kingdom of God. The faction within the church of Crete was fostering a theology that was doing the same thing that the Pharisees did 30 years prior. And adding needless requirements about arguing about what is important and what isn't important. Essentially what they were doing is drawing a line. You remember that game we used to play as a kid? Step over this line. Go ahead. Step over this line. What, what happens? You kind of, you're putting them to a dare, aren't you? And what teachers were doing is they were saying, you need to be on this side of this line. And what Paul was saying is the gospel stands firm all by itself. Trust it. Be confident in it. Look what it says. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law, because they are what? Unprofitable and worthless. Those two words mean to be useless. The the word worthless means to be devoid of force. And so, so Isaac, would you come on up here for a second? He has no clue what's going to happen. So if I I stood there and, and I did this, and tried to put and pushed on you. Are you having to hold much? No, because why? I'm not pushing that hard. I look like I'm pushing hard, but I'm not pushing hard. All the arguments that Paul's talking about here, where we get distracted from what the gospel is, it has that same idea. Pushing, but having no real effect. In fact, you could stand with your legs crossed, couldn't you? Yeah, like, like I could probably do that and push over. But, <laughs> but what we really look like when we don't engage in good deeds for the sake of the gospel is we look, go ahead and do that, stand with your legs crossed. What we do is we look like this, but we're really not having any effect at all on the world around us. Thank you. Devoid of force. Um, when I graduated high school, or toward my senior year of high school, um, I bought my first car. I saved up a little bit of money. My dad said, I will match you. And, and so we went out and find, found a really expensive $2,000 car. And, and, um, and, and I bought it. And I bought it because it looked cool. Um, it was a, and you're going to go, well, that didn't look that cool. In this, as a, 18, 19-year-old, it looked cool, okay? Um, 
So it was a Mustang II, a 74 Mustang II. Now, if you remember Mustangs, a Mustang, regular Mustang had a certain look. Mustangs II, Mustang IIs were the smaller version. And so I had the smaller version, um, and it was, a, it was a hatchback, so it had the it kind of looked like a sports car. It had raised white letter wheels. It had the striping that said Mustang on the side and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it looked good. I changed out the carpet, put some, uh, at that time, shag carpet was still in. So I put some shag carpet in there. It was, it was comfy and cool, okay? Deb never saw it. Don't look at her. She, she never saw it. And I had a friend that had a Mustang notchback when I was in, in my first year of college, and, and it was green. It looked like a plain Mustang, but there was a difference between those two cars. The, his notchback had, had an eight-cylinder in it, and, um, and he could do some things in that car that I could only dream about because my car had a four-cylinder. You know, me, me, we were neck and neck when, when I did with a 10-speed bike, but I couldn't keep up with his car. You know, it, it, there was no force behind it. It was, it was devoid of force. It, it was worthless for racing. It got me where I wanted to go, but, and I looked cool getting there, but I couldn't get there fast. Controversies, genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law, should we add it to grace or not? They are unprofitable and worthless. Stick to the gospel. It has the punch. It has what is needed to affect people's lives. And then in verse 10, it says, 10 and 11, it says, Reject a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. This idea of this, this man that's described here, I don't think is a particular person necessarily, but it's a concept to, for Titus to deal with. What he's saying is, you know there are false teachers, and when you go and talk to the false teachers, remember the elders were set up to talk to them, but Titus was told to go and reprove them strongly about what they were teaching. And, and what Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying, you go talk to them. He says, reject him after a first and second warning, go through the pattern of Matthew chapter 18 and confront. And if they are still willing to stay in that position, then you have to make some decisions about how you will approach them and how you will deal with them. And so he says to, to reject a factious man after first and second warnings. This is what Matthew 18 says. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In, in essence, don't allow him to keep leading as, as a leader but start to treat him as an unbeliever, somebody that needs to be saved. And so what do we do? We pray diligently for somebody who is unsaved. But we also guard that leadership and not allow them that place, that voice 
among the, the congregation. Reject a factious man after first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. That has the whole idea of, I am not going to buy into the gospel. I want to, and this is what's saying, this guy is really saying, I'm not going to change. I'm holding firm in adding to the gospel. And if somebody continues in that, you confront. So what's the conclusion in all this? We're to keep the gospel as that filter for our life, to engage in good deeds and, and realize that we don't need to get in silly arguments because even the silly arguments distract from the gospel. Then what should we do? How should we live out our life? Leonard Sweet said in Aqua Church, he said, the Bible must be metabolized through passions and polemics or, or the, the idea of arguing verbally about controversial things. Polemics of the culture in which it will be lived out. So what, what Sweet says is that we have to allow the gospel to really kind of work in our life. When we metabolize things, what do we do? We gain energy from it, don't we? We, we take it in with the idea that Whatever is feeding us is the thing that gives us energy and strength for moving forward. Well, if the gospel is that which feeds us, we are willing to spend time in prayer and spend time in reading God's Word, spend time in being around believers that challenge us. If we're willing to get in those spots, then there is a better chance that we will use the filter of the gospel right for living engaged in good deeds. Living out the gospel will certainly be a bumpy ride. As I looked at this and, and realized that Paul did not pull any punches with regards to the gospel, it was also very clear to say that some will push back. Some will cause issue. And really, the bumpiest part of the road may be those you are closest to or those for whom you have the most respect. Those are the hardest ones to swallow. Those are the hardest places that we find rejection, isn't it? Compromise on the truth of the gospel is not good. We must speak the gospel because it is trustworthy. And out of that, see that it is good and profitable for all men. So I want to ask you some questions. And here's what I want you to do when we're talking about these questions. Um, I want you to ask yourself this when the question is asked, does this apply to me? Not does it apply to the person sitting next to me or the person I'm thinking about across the room. Does it apply to me? Because all of us have this issue with sometimes taking the gospel and having it in our life, but going around it. Because it's more convenient. See, there's, there's some pain involved in filtering our life through the gospel. Because it means that we take a stand. It means we do some things that are going to cost us among our friends and co-workers and, and places that we go. Not everybody's going to like our decisions as we filter our life through the gospel. So here are the questions. Are you encountering somebody 
someone that is pushing back on the gospel or the principles of Scripture. Whether, you wear, whether it's at work or at home or somewhere else, are you encountering somebody that is pushing back on the gospel or the principles of Scripture? And not in a general sense, you're specifically dealing with that. When we get to the time of invitation, if you're encountering that, I want to ask you to come and pray for that person. Second question. Have you encountered the gospel in such a way that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a believer? And if you were called home, if you died within the next two hours, you know that you would be in heaven. Have you encountered the gospel in such a way that it's made a difference? In other words, you don't just know about the gospel, but it's been applied to you that Jesus came, died, was resurrected, and that forgiveness, forgiveness that is offered through the cross of Calvary is applied to you. You've asked God for forgiveness and, asked and trusted Him as Savior and Lord of your life. Have you encountered the gospel? Third question. Are you in a place that you see yourself compromising the truth of Scripture and are in a place where you want to get back on track. Say, I'm, I'm guilty of going around that filter, wherever it is. And I want to invite you to the gospel as well. And so, invite you to the gospel, and invite you to the altar. See, see the, the altar is going to be open for several folks. So if you're trying to guess, well, that person's in this spot. Or this person's in that spot. You can't really do it, can you? So there's no judging at the altar. This is a come-before-God place. Fourth question. Have you been called to serve in a ministry or someplace, someplace else, and you'd like the church covenant to pray for you? Have you been called to ministry? Are you willing to take the gospel, allow your life to be filtered by the gospel, and then take it into hard places? to engage in good deeds in places where you're going to get pushback. Have you been called to a ministry? Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. 